I was struck some years ago when preaching through the book of Acts, how Luke, the author, seems to give considerable attention to the conversion of wealthy people. It's not wealthy individuals alone, of course, who are converted in the book of Acts, but but Paul, Luke rather, seems to highlight the conversion of what we might call higher-ups or those with means. So from early on in Acts, we see individuals selling off pieces of property to help meet needs in the church. Apparently, these were landowners with more than one plot of land. The Ethiopian in chapter 8 was a court official Back in Ethiopia, he was converted, of course, and brought the gospel back with him to his home. In chapter 10, we meet Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's an officer in the Roman army, and he's saved. In chapter 13, just briefly, we learn of a proconsul, basically like a governor, and he's converted. In chapter 16... We read of the conversion of Lydia, that wealthy merchant selling fabric in purple clothes. In Acts 17, we just read a summary statement of the conversion of not a few leading women, women leading in the community, women with means. We read on and we find Priscilla and Aquila, who are wealthy tent makers in Corinth. And they not only believe, but they also welcome Paul and his associates, probably housing them for up to 18 months there in Corinth, and then supporting Paul's mission later on. Similar examples can be found on almost every page of the book of Acts. So for whatever reason, and perhaps it's because... Acts and the gospel according to Luke are both addressed to most excellent Theophilus, someone who's important, someone who's a higher up, or perhaps it's the apologetic value, the defense of the faith that Luke highlights the conversion of those with means, showing not only them believing, but a hint of their transformation and showing them using their means for the cause of Christ that has apologetic value to it. And yet I don't think we should be surprised by this paradigm we find in Acts. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than anything else except the kingdom of God. Almost every chapter of Proverbs deals with money, possessions, giving, generosity, and every Pauline epistle, every letter that Paul wrote as recorded in our Bibles, deals with money, possessions, generosity, and or work. Now, some churches today do indeed talk too much about money and giving. Some preachers out there today are indeed obsessed with fundraising for their ministry or even to fund their lavish lifestyle. But there are some churches, there are some pastors who are rather squeamish about topics like money and giving. And I, at times, have been one of those preachers. 
Perhaps it's because of the painful awareness of those preachers out there that are obsessed with money and a desire to get rich. Perhaps it's because there are negative responses out there, even in a good church like ours, when money is talked about or talked about a little too much. But the Apostle Paul was not one of those preachers who was shy or hesitant to talk about and teach on money and giving. In fact, he leaned into it. Again, every letter he wrote that's recorded in our Bibles, he deals with generosity, giving, money, and or work. So in addition to him you know, dealing with work in, say, a book like Ephesians, and again in Colossians, and in addition to the treatment of wealth that he deals with in 1 Timothy 6, in addition to those, Paul spent at least 48 verses of our English Bibles talking about one collection, one offering. 48 verses are given to that multi-church, multi-year collection that he was taking up for the relief of the impoverished saints in Jerusalem who were experiencing a famine. And 39 of those 48 verses are found in two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 8. This week we'll look at 2 Corinthians 9. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have one with you. 2 Corinthians 9. We're in a six-week series asking what's next for us as a church. We've asked what's next for our worship? What's next for our discipleship? What's next for our witness? And then last week and this week, we're discussing what's next for our giving. In some ways, we've been saying there's nothing next for this or that. We're just going to keep doing what the Bible says to do and try to do it better. On the other hand, we've thought of other ways we can maybe do some things better. As we think about what's next for our giving, this one is uniquely individual in a sense. It's individual in that each of us has to consider what is next, if anything, for our generosity, for our kingdom giving. And we'll lean on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9 to help us today. It reads like this. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver." And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, what Paul here teaches the Corinthians, though it's in view of a specific offering for a specific need, what Paul teaches the Corinthians is equally applicable to us today in any of our kingdom giving, giving to the Lord, giving for his work, whether it's the support of a local church so that we can have this building and turn lights on, whether it's the support of pastors uh, in the church who are freed up from outside work so that they can give full-time attention to the work of the ministry, whether it's the sending of missionaries to, to faraway lands where there's less gospel there than there is here, whether it's the renovation and expansion of facilities like we've been talking about in recent days here. We've been saying the projects may differ, say, from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to what we're considering today. But the principles that Paul lays out here are indeed the same. They're universal. Here in this chapter, we see four different principles. One is that we should be ready to give. We should be ready to give, verses 1 to 5. The key word in the first five verses is the word ready or readiness, the Corinthian church was to ready themselves to finish the collection that they've already started, this collection for the Jerusalem saints. Remember, if you were with us last week, you heard this, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in a previous letter called 1 Corinthians in our Bible. And it was in chapter 16 that he mentioned this collection and gave, gave the, the command, really, to, to take up a weekly offering for this specific need when they met together. But apparently since that time, they had begun, but then waned in their zeal for this specific collection. No surprise, since they've also waned in their zeal for the Apostle Paul himself. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians in part to revive their zeal for his ministry, and in part to revive their zeal for this collection. So we saw last week in chapter 8 that the Macedonian Christians were held up as this premier example of sacrificial, worshipful giving. Giving which, Paul says, flows out of God's grace, flows out of the gospel that's in Christ. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians in chapter 8 to follow the model 
the model of the Macedonians, the model of Jesus who went to the cross for our sins and gave himself so freely to them themselves to give freely, to finish what they started. And then the argument continues into chapter 9. And here Paul actually says that he's been bragging about the Corinthians. He's been bragging about their zeal to the Macedonian Christians. And and that bragging has boosted their zeal in Macedonia for this project. So Paul is now going to send three messengers according to the end of chapter 8. These messengers are handling the collection of funds and the in the travel, the transfer of those funds to get to Jerusalem. So just practically speaking, the Corinthians need to get the gift ready. They need to finish off the collection they've already started. Uh, The guys are coming, and they're going to need to take it when they get there. And yet Paul also taps in to these themes of honor and shame, amazingly. I mean, he, he says, Corinthians... You said you would give to this. And I said that you would give to this. I told others. Now, if we show up and you're sort of scrambling when we get there, like, oh, we forgot about this whole gift thing. Well, it's not going to look good. And if Macedonians are with me, remember, poor Macedonians, if they show up in wealthy Corinth, and this has been an afterthought for you, and there's no gift ready, it's going to be especially embarrassing. It might seem like Paul's doing some sort of manipulation here, some sort of heavy-handed tactic to tap into motives of honor and shame. But look at verse 5. He says that this is to be a willing gift, not an exaction. As he said back in chapter 8, He says this not as a commandment. He wanted them to give it freely. He wanted wanted them to get it ready of their own accord because they wanted to, because they said they would, because, well, Paul has been telling others that they would get it ready. Now, how does this apply to us? From one angle, it's really specialized here in the passage, isn't it? This is a specific collection for a specific need with some unusual circumstances surrounding it. But from another angle, the principle at work here is just the planning for giving, the preparedness for giving. They are to ready themselves, they're to ready their offering, and they're to complete what they have said that they would do. By implication, there's a need for us to plan. There's a need for us to get ready to give. There's a need for us to think of what we're going to give before we give. There's a need to follow through with that. There's a need for consistency in our giving. And we can be encouraged by the example of others as they do it. A ready gift. Secondly, there's cheerful giving. Verses 5 to 7 talk of cheerful giving. At least that's where Paul lands at the end of verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. That's the most noble attitude for kingdom giving, happy giving. That's where Paul's going to go, but he takes a few steps along the way in working towards that most noble of attitudes in giving. So verse 6 speaks of generous giving. 
Whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Don't give sparingly. Give bountifully. Generous giving. In verse 7, he talks about their giving being free. That is, freely determined. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. That's where it's personal. It's corporate in that they're all doing this together, but each one has to decide in his heart what he's going to give, what he can give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. As he said back in verse 5, he's looking for a willing gift, not in exaction. He's not giving them a command, as he said back in chapter 8. Again, we've seen this in the book of Exodus in chapter 35, where Moses invites the people, whoever is of a generous heart, give to this contribution towards the building of the tabernacle. And then they came. It says, Exodus 35, 21, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, brought the Lord's contribution. Now that's the principle that carries over from Old Testament to New Testament. What's called a free will offering, like was given for the tabernacle and later the temple. But not the Old Testament tithe system, totaling 23 and a third percent total. That doesn't carry over to the New Testament. It's not found in any of Paul's teachings. If it were ever to be found anywhere in the New Testament, you'd sure think that two whole chapters laying out a theology of giving would be a place where Paul would say, hey, you guys should do the tithe. 10%. Just start there. Or perhaps Paul would have laid out a principle. How about the tithe and beyond? He doesn't do that either. Each one is to determine what generous, worshipful giving looks like for them. Now, in middle class America, 10% may not actually be sacrificial for some. So don't think t- uh, 10%, man, that's the, that's the pinnacle. Well, no, remember, 23 and a third percent was what the Old Testament saints were doing. So while the New Testament teaching is that it's freely determined, personally determined in the amount, it's also to be generous. It's also to be sacrificial. We're to sow bountifully. The Macedonian example back in chapter 8 was that they were giving in a way that was, in a sense, beyond their means. There was a pinch to it. They felt it. They gave so much. And yet they freely embraced the pinch. Biblical Christian giving and generosity involves a pinch, but it's a freely decided pinch that we embrace. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, the Macedonians gave of their own accord and it cost them something. They felt it. As I said last week, it's good and right for us on our own or as a family from time to time to sit down and look at our budget, to look at our expenses, to look at our needs, to take fresh inventory of What we spend, what we have, what we can give, maybe if we can give more. 
Asking what's next for our giving shouldn't be something we only do once every 18 years when we think about possible building expansion. It should be something we do. And to suggest that we at times look at our finances and take fresh inventory of where things go and what we've been given and what we might be able to give, that is not legalism. That is not manipulation. No, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. But sometimes we coast for a good long while since the last time we once decided in our hearts how much we would give. Besides, sometimes we ebb and flow in our comfortability with materialism. Don't we all know this? Don't we experience this? You, you get in a season where you just haven't been thoughtful and you sort of have bought into some ideas of the world about what you deserve and what you need and what you need to get. I mean, we live in an age where ads are thrown at us everywhere, all the time. And each one is screaming loudly with flashing lights and bright colors that you need this. And if you have it, you'll be happier. You'll be satisfied. This is the one. Now get this one. They'll say to us that we not only need this, this thing we didn't think we needed before they showed it to us, but that we really deserve it as well. And sometimes we ebb and flow into seasons of greater fear than others, more anxiety than others. I've been reminded in recent days as we're talking about you know, fundraising and giving and these sorts of things and sharing stories with each other from time to time, I've been reminded that there are really two different approaches to money that both can compete with kingdom giving. So on the one hand, you've got this familiar one, this easily identifiable one, what we might call an idolatry of stuff, an idolatry of getting, an idolatry of collecting and having and hoarding and enjoying, an idolatry of spending. But then there's also an idolatry of saving. It's motivated by fear. It's motivated by anxiety. It looks better than the other one, right? The, the guy who buys everything to have everything, that guy, he has no control over his finances. As for us, we're very rigid. We use this method. We never overspend. We don't ever use credit cards. We save, save, save. We could retire at 55 if we were able, if, if, if we wanted well, that all may be well and good and wise and godly, and it may be the idolatry of saving. It doesn't really let go of things freely because it doesn't trust the Lord. So rather than that, how about this? Not just generous giving or willing giving, but ultimately cheerful giving. God loves a cheerful giver. We're all familiar with cheerful receiving, right? Re cheerful getting, even cheerful spending. But here, less common is this idea of cheerfully giving, enjoying giving up 
in order to give towards. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver. He loves the heart of the giver who gives freely and happily. He doesn't love the gift. At least it doesn't say that. He's not desperate for the gift. He's not really ultimately in need of the gift. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He could, he could meet the needs of the famine in Jerusalem all by himself without this collection. But God loves it when God's people give to God's purposes and do it happily. Third, we've been given to give according to verses 8 to 11. Given to give. In other words, God gave to the Corinthians so that they might give from what they've been given. And the same is true for us. God gives to us what we need and beyond that we might freely give to others and to his purposes. See verse 8, and notice all of the alls and the word every, every and all in the Greek. It's almost the same exact Greek word. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Or he uses an analogy in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. We've been given in order to give. As I've said before, it's like a father whose birthday is coming up and his five-year-old wants to buy him a present, but she has no money. A good dad will give his daughter money so that she can buy him a present, a present that he doesn't need, a present he could have bought on his own. But he gives so that she might give, so that they might enjoy and express love together. It's all God's in the first place. It's all his. That idea of stewardship is something we've been talking about in recent days. But we've said that it's not helpful to think, <clears throat> God gives me what I have, and then i got to give a portion of it back to him. But instead to think that God gives money, possessions, things, as assignments. We're stewards of it. We're managers of what's his. It's all his. That also helps us think through why we give and why we don't give. So I don't know if you notice when we've read some of these verses now twice that they sound like they come out of the prosperity gospel version of the Bible. I mean, they're just a... Some verses here, some phrases that look like gold mine material for the prosperity gospel. So verse 6, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. If you're familiar with the TV preachers, you can imagine them quoting this text and off they are running with their sermon. Verse 10, God will multiply your seed. He'll give $100 to this ministry and eventually, in time, God will give you tenfold back, I promise. Verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way. 
You'll be enriched in every corner of your life if you give. But the prosperity gospel preachers actually have it backwards. They say you give in order to get more from God. But Paul says you've been given in order to give. And besides, the context makes clear if we read carefully what it is that they're reaping. So so that phrase, reap bountifully in verse 6, we could ask, what exactly will the Corinthians reap? And verse 6 alone doesn't tell us. So we read on, and we realize that Paul's not really talking about monetary returns here. You see verse 8, that you may abound in every good work, not abound in great wealth. Verse 10, God will multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your, what's he going to say next? The harvest of your money, the harvest of your stuff, the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11, this will produce, what's it going to produce? Thanks to God. So we don't give to God in order to get more from him. Instead, we view all that we have as fundamentally his to be employed for his purposes. You say, well, what are his purposes? Well, it doesn't mean not you, not your family. So God's purposes are for your provision, for your protection, for your shelter. We have Bible verses about these sorts of things. It's good and right for us to provide for our kids a a normal life. God's purposes for our stuff is in part that we enjoy it all. 1 Timothy 6 talks about this. It's often found in the book of Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. Paul warns in, I believe it's 1 Timothy 4, he warns about false teachers who are all about denying the pleasures of God's good created world. Enjoy what you have. And part of God's purposes for us as Christians is that we give to the ministry of the church and to the sending forth of the gospel and to the the care of those who are in need, sometimes financial need, sometimes spiritual need. But we should think of our money and possessions less like Gollum with the ring, me precious, and more, well, like the analogy here of seed. We should think of our money like seed. Yeah, I got to eat some of it, but you know, you just see. This is what this is what you do. This is what God's given it to us for. Which leads fourthly to the results of giving. The results of giving are found in the last four to five verses of our passage. In short, the results are thanks and praise and prayers to God, and those things abounding in multiplying, in spreading. So the Corinthians' gift, verse 11, Paul says, will produce thanksgiving to God on the other end. In verse 12, he says, it not only supplies the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, but it's overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God because of what you're doing. 
because of your contribution. In verse 14, they long for you and they pray for you on account of all this. We can, we should, we must be encouraged by other people's giving. Yes, without knowing how much they give. We don't have to know how much anyone gives to be encouraged by their giving. And not just financial giving. You might have heard of the three T's of time and talents and treasures. Here are the things that we're stewards of in God's economy of things. We should be encouraged whenever people give of their time and talents and and treasures. Were we not, are we not still encouraged? Because years ago, we sent off two families to live in North Africa to to bring the gospel to some Muslim people there where they're in a city where there's maybe a few other Christians. Aren't we encouraged that they went? You didn't go. I didn't go. I didn't want to go. They went. They're still there. We're encouraged by that. We're encouraged by the the support, the financial support that makes that possible. I didn't think we'd be able to do it. We did. We still are. I, I was with the brothers and sisters at Christ Church yesterday, our church plant as of three years ago. I was with them leading a parenting seminar, and 65 young couples were there. There for a parenting seminar. Some of them don't have kids yet, but you know what? They think kids are in the future. We should probably begin to think about this parenting thing. Praise God for that. Praise God for Nathan and Clint, the planting pastors who were once on staff at this church, and they left. And they're giving and serving. And praise God for the financial support that we were able to give as a church, not only from the 80 or so adults that left our church to go plant that church, but also financial contributions that we were able to give them in the first couple years of their existence as a church. That's encouraging to us. It's encouraging to see people give, to give of themselves, to sacrifice more. I was encouraged as Drew Hodge on Friday was ministering to the Lobo football team, leading them in a funeral for one of their own. Drew's the chaplain for the Lobo football team. That's not a paid gig. He's doing it because he cares about people and he cares about the gospel. And it encourages me. So Let's observe God's kindness to us in others as they give of themselves and of their time and talents and treasures. And even in the smallest of ways, I've seen occasionally at times around here, someone on a Sunday dropping an envelope in an offering box. I don't know what they're giving. It could be a note complaining about the sermon. (laughs) But I presume it's not. And I smile. Every time, it just gets me like, ha, they're giving. That's cool. And may that thankfulness to God and praise to him bubble up and reach a kind of 
crescendo effect as it did for Paul in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's the inexpressible gift? I think it has to mean Christ, the gospel, the good news, the grace of God that comes in Christ. I think he didn't need to tell us what gift he had in mind. The inexpressible gift is Christ, whom the Father gave. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. God gave. We give because God gave. He gave the inexpressible gift. That word inexpressible, behind it in the Greek text, it's a word that isn't found anywhere in ancient Greek texts. It seems as though Paul made it up. He was trying to think of, well, what's a word for inexpressible? And he said, I know, I'll just make one up because that's inexpressible. Almost like an automatopoeia. It's inexpressible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross for us, for our sins, for our salvation, dying, bearing the wrath of God. It's unthinkable what God gave. It is, it is incredible. Him being raised in glory on the third day. This is inexpressible. This is unthinkable. Have you come to believe it? Have you come to embrace it? Because verse 13 says that all this good, cool stuff of happy kingdom giving, verse 13 says it comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The thankfulness spreading, the praise to God growing. Verse 14, it's because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So have you come to confess this gospel? Romans 10 tells us that we believe in our hearts, but we do confess to the Lord that we want his mercy and forgiveness. And that we do, in fact, believe. That we do believe what he said about us, that that we're sinners, that we're in need, that we're in trouble before him apart from his grace. And that... Christ has come and has made the payment for our sin. He he bore the wrath. He took the blame. He died all the way and was raised on the third day. So you confess that to God. That's how you become a Christian. You you believe this to be true and you say, Lord, I, I acknowledge I have no hope before you because of my sin. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. Will you forgive me? May I receive this mercy? That's what it means to confess the gospel of Christ. And if you do that, even today, you can say that there is a surpassing grace of God upon you. You can join Paul and everyone in this room with an exclamation, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And then you may even join with us in giving towards ministry things. If you're not a Christian, you're here today, please know that we are not after your money. We don't care about your money. We really don't even care about each other's money. We're talking about money this morning because we care about funding the spread of the gospel, the ministry of the church. 
That's why we're talking about money. That's why Christians, biblical Christians, talk about money. Because there's got to be some funding for the spread of the gospel and the ministry of the local church. And you might, if you come to believe that gospel, actually join with us to ready yourself to give. To give willingly, generously, and happily because God loves that kind of giving. And because he's given so that we can give. And because it results in this resounding crescendo of thanks and praise to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for his living, for his dying, for his resurrection. We pray for your help, Lord, to believe this and keep on believing this, to confess it and keep on confessing it before a watchful world. Lord, we pray that the grace that's in Christ would affect us and infect us in such a way that we're transformed even down to our wallets and checkbooks and savings accounts. We pray, Lord, you would continue to grow us in your way of thinking about the needs of this world in time and eternity and what's most important. We ask for your help and we pray and say all this in Christ's name alone. Amen.